North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. Kim's rolled out the red carpet for President Xi Jinping, marking the first trip by a Chinese leader to Pyongyang in more than a decade. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. North Korean state media is reporting that President Trump sent what they're calling an excellent personal letter to Kim and that the North Korean leader is seriously contemplating what is written in it. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. In this episode, Andrew and CSIS's Victor Cha speak to one of the most prominent journalists covering North Korea today. Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief of The Washington Post and the author of a new biography, The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. Andrew, Victor, and Anna discuss the difficulty of reporting on an elusive state. They also talk China's relationship with North Korea and future U.S. strategy toward the Hermit Kingdom. Anna, it's so great to have you with us. Um, Tell us, though, you've got a new book out, and North Korea is one of the most elusive places to report on. How do you manage to cover a country that's so restrictive and manipulative about its information? Yeah, I mean, great question. I I mean, it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. I mean, all reporting is like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, but I think North Korea is like a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle as opposed to the usual hundred piece. And that, um, you know, I have to talk to a really wide range of people, uh, people from inside the country, outside the country, defectors, experts, you know, just as many people as possible to try to piece together um, a true picture of what's going on inside there because, yeah, we can't count on what the regime tells us. Has it become any easier, you know, now that there's a diplomacy between the U.S. and the North Koreans? There's something of a diplomatic frenzy at, at times. Are people more prone to want to talk to you than they were before? Um, yes and no. I mean, in some ways, it's much easier to talk to people who've met Kim Jong-un because there are so many more people who've met Kim Jong-un. And I was able to track down some of those people who have talked to him during this, uh, you know, diplomatic offensive of the past year and a half. Uh, and they were able to give me their impressions. But at the same time, like many people in the administration did not want to talk because this is still uh, an ongoing process. They didn't want to do anything to make this, uh, you know, diplomatic effort even more difficult than it already was. So people were a bit guarded in some respects. But I felt like I was able to get a sense from the people who have met him of what he was like, what it was like to be in the room with him in some of these talks. I want to bring Victor in. Victor Chaz with us, of course. And Victor's written extensively on um, Kim Jong-un and his father and his grandfather and, and knows this regime better than anyone um, and knows their, their difference in personalities. Victor, you've read Anna's book and, and you're up on how, you know, she's now talking to people who have actually met Kim. What does this all mean to you as a scholar of this family? So the first thing I want to say is I want to congratulate Anna on her terrific book. I read it in the pre-publication draft that the publisher sent me, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, just to compare, I'd say this book fills a really important hole in the scholarship because, you know, arguably the last book before this was actually my book, The Impossible State. And as I was writing the book, The Impossible State, Kim Jong-il died as we were writing the book. And so I had a 
small section on Kim Jong-un, but they said, you know, first we have to move the, the publication timeline up by six months. So you have to write six months faster than you normally would. Um, and then the second thing they said was try to put as much as you could in on Kim Jong-un since he's the next leader of North Korea. And I did what I could, but it was not nearly, we didn't have any information. We had very little information, in fact, at that point. Uh, I think at that point, all we had that was comparable to the, you know, wealth of information gathered by Anna and her book was, uh, one profile that I think his name was Andrew Higgins. Anna, do you remember him? Andrew Higgins. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who did one piece on this. And that was about all we had in terms of that. So, so there, there was a great book written on Kim Il-sung by the uh, University of Hawaii scholar Sadeso, but there has not been a good book written on Kim Jong-un, the current leader. And so Anna's book fills this really important hole. And, I agree with her entirely. I mean, whether you're inside of government or outside of government, North Korea is so opaque. It is like putting together a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. And it's I would say it's a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle with some of the pieces missing, permanently missing. So, <laughs> yeah, right. So it makes it even yeah. it makes it even harder. Sure. Yeah, and it, it and it's sort it's sort of like uh, it's like the puzzle you find the puzzle box you find in the basement, and you take it out and you put it together, and then you're missing like the key pieces. Like you have. You have 995 pieces, and the five pieces you're missing are the most important pieces. Right. <laughs> but the thing, what's so interesting is that this guy that she writes about is so much more interesting to study than the previous guy, right? Because the previous guy was a recluse, did not have uh, much in terms of diplomacy. But this fellow is not only is he young, he came in under duress. Um, he somehow managed to consolidate power, and now he's entertaining the, you know, he's commanding the audience of the Chinese president, what, the fourth time this, you know, this week, uh, possibly a third meeting with the U.S. president. So he's very different, and in that sense, um, it's a great topic to study, and Anna's the, you know, Anna's like the first, first to, to get this full-length book on him. So it's really, it's really a good book. Hmm. Thank you very much, Victor. Do you think there's going to be a third meeting with President Trump? Oh, I mean, there is like rumors about this, right? And they're saying that preparations are going to uh, happening at the moment. I mean, it's hard to believe that President Trump, you know, after the disaster of Hanoi, would travel uh, again to meet this person unless he was absolutely certain that this time they were going to get really tangible, substantial progress. Um, and I don't know whether you can ever have that much certainty in dealing with Kim Jong-un. So I think that both sides really do want this process to continue and the, you know, the words that we've heard both from President Trump and from the North Korean state media have been very much in line of, you know, um, very conciliatory and all the right mood music is there. But in terms of how they actually get back to the talks, I think that's quite a steep hill at this stage. There's been beautiful letters written, right, Victor? Right. Yeah. So on the one hand, you know, the letter, the new letter that Kim sent to Trump was apparently uh, unexpected. Um, there was you know, very little communication after Hanoi, and then all of a sudden this letter shows up out of nowhere, um, you know, reportedly talking about a reset after after Hanoi. And then you have Xi, Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, going to North Korea. Normally when you see those two events in sequence, that would suggest that they were moving towards a third summit um, because, of course, the Chinese always want a meeting with the North before there's another meeting with the, U the U.S., 
On the other hand, I agree with Anna. I mean, it'd be nice, I think, for everybody who's watching as a TV spectacle for there to be a third son, but there's absolutely no guarantee that it would not fail like the last one did. And um, frankly, I think, you know, what has happened in the news today or the revelations today about Iran and the president calling off the Iran military strike, to me, the, the bank shot from that on North Korea is that I think that just reinforces the worst tendencies in the North Korea negotiation in two respects. The first is it shows the North Koreans that uh, Trump may not have a lot of resolve when it comes to being tough, you know, which is a problem, obviously. And then, and then secondly, it reinforces this notion that only the president makes the decisions. I mean, the entire U.S. government looks like it was moving in one direction and that at the last minute the president turns it off. So that just reinforces the devaluing of the working level meetings, which is critical to getting success at the third summit. So, you know, it, it just reinforces this vicious circle. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I mean, look at the North Koreans have been so reluctant to talk to Steve Began. They've dissed uh, Mike Pompeo and asked for him to be replaced and things repeatedly. So yeah, who is there at the working level? Uh, and plus, obviously, there's been a lot of disappearances on the North Korean side amongst their negotiators. So this is why I also think the pathway to get back to that is really difficult. I don't think they even know who Began's counterpart is now. I mean, I don't... I, my understanding is he was asked a question on this and he could not answer, like, who is his counterpart anymore? Because things are so uncertain after, after Hanoi. So I don't think they dislike Pompeo. I think they were just venting after Hanoi because, um, you know, Pompeo is the deliverer of bad news. Um, and he is, you know, essentially the main conduit aside from the two leaders themselves. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I just I just put it off the post-summit venting because they were embarrassed after Hanoi uh, more yeah. than the U.S. side was. They were terribly embarrassed by this. I mean, can you imagine being one of the North Korean delegates and you're on this 60-hour train ride back from Vietnam to North Korea <laughs> after a meeting in which the North Korean leader for the first time had somebody say no to him? I can't, that could not have been a comfortable Right. And in, in that case, the North Koreans, they announced in advance that uh, Kim Jong-un was going to the summit, which they have never done before. So that really created, I think, a lot of expectation from um, from their side. And, you know, Kim Jong-un was therefore then required to give a kind of explanation as to why things hadn't worked out. I mean, he had the pomp and circumstance of the Vietnamese state visit, but but still that wasn't what was advertised. I bet there's a lot of people on that train ride trying to hide in the men's room or the bathroom or whatever. <laughs> Looking for the last caboose on the train. <laughs> it's 60 hours is a long time to be with uh, Kim Jong-un on the yeah. train after that. Changing gears a little bit. Anna, what's your assessment on what happened to Otto Wambier? Yeah, I mean, North Korea's obviously taken a lot of hostages in the past and they have always, um, you know, used them for some kind of leverage or bargaining chip and they've made sure, you know, they don't want anybody dying in North Korea, right? Like there was the case of Merrill Newman, who was quite elderly, who was detained after telling people he had fought in the Korean War. And the North Koreans like sent him back pretty swiftly. And the same with Kenneth Baer. They did, he spent a lot of time in hospital and they did try to treat him while he was there. Not making excuses for North Korea, but they have made an effort there. So I think that 
the case of Otto Warmbier was accidental for sure. They did not intend for him to be uh, rendered dead in that, you know, or brain dead in that way. Um, but as to how he ended up in that situation, you know, I think we will never never know. Uh, I think, you know, the North Koreans said he had a bad reaction. He had food poisoning and a bad reaction to the medicine. I mean, that seems difficult to believe, but but still like plausible that he may have vomited and choked on his vomit or whatever. You know, maybe he was 21 years old, sentenced to 15 years in prison. You know, I think it's plausible that maybe he did try to hang himself or something in the room there. We will never know what actually happened to him, but I think that the North Korean um, state apparatus must have gone into panic when they discovered the state that he was in and tried to cover it up, uh, tried to keep it secret within the regime. Because we do know that the foreign ministry did not know about this until Chesson He had gone to Oslo in that June and agreed to allow consular access to him. And it was only then that the foreign ministry side were told about the condition that he was in. I would not disagree with that account. But here's the thing that could have been done, right? And and that would have been, you know, in the meeting in Hanoi or in one of these communications back and forth, the president of the United States could have said, asked the North Korean leader to at least express some regret about the death. And if he didn't want to do that, at least promise to bring an explanation of exactly what happened the next time that they would meet. I mean, it would be it would be a, a decent thing to do, and it would be at least the smallest nod to a to acknowledging, you know, the gross human rights abuses that take place under under this dictatorship, and it may not have brought consolation to the Warmbier family because you know they lost their son, but it still would have been at least uh, it could have been portrayed as an effort to, to to address this horrible thing that happened to an American citizen who just happened to be a tourist in North Korea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the point more broadly there is that, yes, human rights should be part of this bigger conversation, I think, and they should be finding a way to incorporate this into the discussion about the nuclear program and the peace treaty and this, you know, make, broaden this out and make this a bigger picture discussion. Because North Korea has proven to be, yeah, quite responsive on, I mean, they've taken notice. They took notice of the Commission of Inquiry report because it recommended, you know, referring Kim Jong-un himself to the International Criminal Court. So there is a way to introduce this and to make, you know, progress contingent on pro- progress in that as well. I agree with that. And I think it is absolutely the case that on any of these high politics issues, whether it's economic reform or the nuclear issue, there there really is no way to succeed in, on any of these without addressing the human rights abuses in the country. So, for example... The North Korean leader says he's now interested in economic growth. Well, if there's ever going to be any economic growth in the country fueled by foreign direct investment, that is not going to happen unless there is an improvement of the human rights situation in the country. I mean, there's just not, you know, we have in the U.S., the United States, we have the Tariff Act. There are a number of other laws passed by Congress that would make it impossible for uh, legal counsels at major corporations to say, oh, yeah, go ahead, invest in there, and, you know, we don't have to worry about being in violation of U.S. law. They could be in violation of U.S. law. Same thing on the nuclear issue. I mean, if part of the nuclear problem derives from insecurity of the regime, that insecurity in turn derives from the nature of the regime, right, the fact that it is a paranoid dictatorship 
that no matter how much it tries to control its people with an iron fist, will always feel insecure. So, you know, I feel like any way you look at this, it eventually comes back to human rights and some improvement of the, of the situation on the ground in North Korea. And yet it's the issue that gets left, left furthest to the side, you know, when the two leaders are meeting or, or when there are negotiations going on, so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, and not just left to the side, but, uh, you know, Donald Trump memorably said in Singapore that there are a lot of rough places out there. He was not only seeking an explanation from, uh, from Kim Jong-un, not, well, not seeking an explanation from Kim Jong-un, but he was like, uh, like explaining away the yeah. human right. Yeah, excusing it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What are the Chinese telling the North Koreans about this, though? Ultimately, they have to know that despite Donald Trump maybe trying to sweet-talk Kim Jong-un into getting a better deal, the Chinese must be telling the North Korean leader that the United States is not ultimately going to give North Korea what they want unless North Korea is going to give the United States something, at least what the United States wants. You know... Nobody in Asia wants North Korea with nuclear weapons, right? And China included. But I think right now, I mean, so China is happy that North Korea has stopped testing at least uh, and that we are in this kind of more stable period. And I think they do want to encourage Kim Jong-un down this path. They, uh, Xi Jinping, who clearly has no love lost for Kim Jong-un, uh, does want to give him some easy victories and encourage him to continue with diplomacy, to focus on economic development, um, not to go back to testing and to keep everything under lock and key, if not, you know, giving it all up. Uh, so now, I mean, it's very interesting that he's gone there so soon. I think a lot of people were expecting maybe by the end of the year, but not so quickly. Quickly. Um, so, yeah, what have they what have they given him? What have they promised him? What's he promised them? I mean, it was very startling to see this op-ed on the front page of the Rodong Shinmun talking about, you know, kind of a new chapter in relations and very conciliatory message that Xi Jinping was delivering there. So we know what Kim Jong-un wants. Kim Jong-un wants sanctions relief. But how far is Xi Jinping willing to go to encourage him down this path, especially while UN sanctions still remain in place. Um, and I was up in Dandong recently, and I was surprised there on the border between North Korea and China, like how stringently sanctions are still being imposed. I thought that after maximum pressure was over, that it would be back to business as normal up there. But it's not really like there's still things are still quite constrained in terms of trade between China and North Korea. So I think, I mean, will that change now after this meeting between the two of them? This may be a naive question, but why doesn't China just take Kim Jong-un out? Wouldn't it serve their purposes better? (laughs) Wouldn't it be a lot easier for them if there was a unified Korea and they didn't have to deal with a nuclear state that was, uh, you know, potentially a rogue state? Yeah. Well, so I think the answer is no, because the devil that you know is better than the devil that you don't know. In the sense that, you know, they certainly have problems with the North Korean leader and with the nuclear weapons and the, and the bad behavior. But taking out the leadership would create much more instability. Unification would potentially mean a U.S. military ally as a border state of China, uh, which sure. I don't think they would take too well, particularly the PLA would not like that very much. Historically, 
the one lesson that is taught to the PLA in terms of geo, the People's Liberation Army in terms of geo strategy is that whenever the Korean Peninsula is unstable, it works to China's detriment, whether it's either um, invasions from Japan historically or invasions from the United States, you know, in their, in their minds during the Korean War. There is never a good situation where there's instability on that, on that southern flank. So I think for all those reasons, you know, they would, uh, they would probably, uh, argue against doing something like that. But the other thing I want to say to, to what Anna said earlier is I think, yes, I think the Chinese are working hard on sanctions and everything, but I feel like China always operates within a limited band when it comes to North Korea. That is, when they want to get the North Koreans back to the table, they will enforce sanctions in a way to try to squeeze them enough to get them back to the table. But once the North Koreans are back at the table, then they hand the ball over to the United States, and they're not willing to expend the resources to really try to push for a denuclearization agreement. And when I say expend the resources, that could be incentives in terms of transplanting some of the money they use for trade to some sort of energy compensation or program for North Korea in return for uh, suspension of the, of the entire system, or resources in terms of truly leveraging their relationship with the regime um, in, 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 if the North does not comply with agreement. I mean, I mean, basically, I would like to see the Chinese treat the North Korean nuclear issue as seriously as they treat Taiwan or Tibet. Um, and then I think we have a shot at making some progress. But, but I feel like right now there's a lot of free riding going on on the, Chi- on the Chinese side when, uh, when the ball ends up in the U.S. court in terms of diplomacy. Yeah, but I mean, there's this perception of him, right? That he is this kind of caricature of a dictator or like something out of a James Bond film or something. But if he was irrational. Or even a film that Sony puts out that causes a major <laughs> hacking. <of it. laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the tendency to view him as a madman or irrational. And I think, I mean, he is not uh, either of those things. And the simple proof is in the fact that he's still in power seven and a half years later, that he has managed to defy all of the expectations and to keep a grip on this regime, you know, this system that should have collapsed many decades ago, probably, uh, you know, that he's managed to keep it intact and he's managed to stay in control. Like he couldn't have done that if he was acting irrationally. And so the reason I say, you know, we should be taking him seriously is because he is a real threat. He is a threat on a daily basis to the 25 million people of North Korea who live in this extremely repressive system that has not let up at all under Kim Jong-un. But also he is a threat to the outside world and that he has shown this astonishing progress to be able to have have a credible intercontinental ballistic missile threat to demonstrate hydrogen bomb capability. These are all things we would have laughed about as saying, you know, this is not, you know, not feasible. North Korea is not capable of doing this. But under Kim Jong-un, they actually have done it. So I think, you know, we should be viewing him as somebody who has like a seriousness of purpose and who is not um, not a cartoon character for sure. Victor? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's right. One of the biggest mistakes that we could make is to not take this guy seriously. Uh, and just to, just to sort of see him as some, you know, crazy, lonely guy. Well, sort of like they were portraying in that movie, crazy, lonely guy with a funny haircut 
who you know right. blows off weapons to try to get attention. I mean, this is this is real. It's serious. He's a, clearly demonstrated a threat to his own people, but then also to Korea, Japan, and the United States. This is this is not something uh, to joke about or take lightly. Anna Feinfeld of the Washington Post, thank you for your time, for your great reporting, and for telling us about your great new book. Everybody who's listening, go out and buy it. It's a great read. Thank you, Andrew. And can I, while I'm here, can I just give a special shout out to Dr. Victor Cha? And thank you so much for all your guidance over what, almost 15 years now, uh, since I started covering Korea and your great uh, books and scholarship on that. It's been a tremendous help to me over the years. Yes, even though a good majority of that advice was wrong and the predictions were wrong, I'm flattered. <laughs> I'm flattered, Anna. You'll be right one day, Victor. That's right. That's right. (laughs) If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.